the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Well, thank you kindly, and welcome on into this Tuesday edition of Lifeline for the 19th day of July. Trust you're having a good week so far. Summer kind of in full swing. And, you know, during the summer months, we tend to kind of get a little bit relaxed. We kick back. We're less, less perhaps stressed in many regards. Uh, although with the kids home, <laughs> maybe that's helped to increase your uh, your stress level significantly. So, well, if that be the case, I do not wish to pile on. <laughs> But uh, there are issues, of course, that uh, never take a vacation and that we need to be uh, vigilant and diligent on. And the issue of life is certainly a very important one. I bring this up because, as you know, in sort of the the wake of the good news of the SCOTUS decision um, related to vacating Roe and Doe, um, that's only part of the story. As your perhaps aware, from the very get-go, meaning from 1973 on, for the last 49-plus years of the existence of Roe v. Wade, it has largely been characterized on the pro-abortion side by lies, half-truths, disinformation, or, quite frankly, the intentional and outright concealment of facts, largely because I think there's been financial interest, financial gain. This is big business, after all. If you look at the average cost of an abortion in America just in recent decades, in the last decade, and take that number and cut it in half and now multiply it by more than 63 million, begins to give you a sense of the billions of dollars that are behind this interest industry and why they are so bent on preserving what they do from a financial standpoint at all costs. Now, as you know, the SCOTUS decision didn't say that abortion was illegal in America. It said that the individual states get to decide. Well, if that be the case, and as recent as fresh as this decision is, it's hard to imagine that anybody is not clear on the concept, but apparently some in the administration are. As we're hearing now that they're attempting to override state laws related specifically to so-called medication abortions or chemical abortions, the um, leader of the or the secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services has now been directed by the president to, quote, take steps to ensure that these critical medications are available to the fullest extent possible at a national level, close quote. Which then begins to make you wonder, well, wait a minute. Did the Supreme Court just say this is up to the states, not the feds? Well, I help unravel this um, bit of a sticky wicket. We've got Brian Johnston with us today, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee and host of Life Matters, heard Saturday mornings at 11 a.m. 
here on KFAX. Brian, always good to have you with us. And I'm, I'm a little confused here. If indeed, as yeah. we suggest, the Supreme Court has said this is a state decision, not a federal decision, then why are the feds poking their nose back into the subject again? Well, Craig, you're touching on a very important element. Thank you for accurately explaining what Roe was. Again, part of our problem is that many people don't realize what Roe did. It took the compelling state duty, what's known as the compelling state interest to protect lives within its jurisdiction, which existed in 73. Every state had laws saying, well, we're not going to have abortion at all. Some states said, well, we'll have certain abortions at certain times. That's what California, Colorado, New York, and Massachusetts had in 73. But every state said, we're going to draw the lines of where you can kill a human being. Because every state under our Constitution is given that authority. But also, by the way, given the authority to take lives. Some states, California doesn't right now, but some states said, we have capital crimes, and we're going to allow certain human beings to be killed. That's known as the death penalty. But those people, you have to have rules. There must be due process of law. And then someone can be put on trial because they get the due process of law. But the state can kill people. All of that authority was taken away from the states. of Who can live and die in an abortion? That was given to one person, the abortionist, under Roe. And thankfully, as you have pointed out, what the Dobbs decision said is, wait a second. There's no such thing as this universal right to an abortion. There's no abortion in the Constitution. It's absurd. It's the duty of states to make these decisions. It's not the duty of somebody with an MD degree to do it whenever they want to do it, which is what Roe did. It didn't give women the right, and we don't have time to belabor it, but you've heard Ruth Bader Ginsburg agree with us. Women were not given the right to make a determination. Only the abortionist was. And now that right for determination of who lives and dies is given back to the states. That's what Dobbs does. But Dobbs doesn't protect a single baby. It's now up to each and every state. And I have to tell you, listener, that means the voters... We Please go back in time in American history. The voters during the Kansas-Nebraska Act got to determine if their states would protect slaves as human beings or would allow slaves to be owned and killed. Each voter got to vote and they determined who would be elected and whether or not that state would protect. We are now on the cusp of that battle state by state. And the authority of the states to protect lives is what's being questioned now by the Biden administration. They're saying, forget the states. We're going to federalize abortion and make abortion happen everywhere. That's nowhere in either one of these decisions. So the federal government is going well beyond, but it's because of the ideology of the Biden administration. They believe in unlimited abortion at any time, for any reason, or for no reason in particular, just for choice. We're going to end this life. Shut up. You have nothing to say about it. This life should be disposed of. That is choice. And this is a radical 
radical departure even from Roe v. Wade. This goes far beyond the Roe v. Wade debate. So when we have a chance, I'm going to talk to you about my next book, Craig, <laughs> which actually will explain the ideology of the pro-death, pro-abortion movement. And it will stun you. This is not a new idea that government should pay for all abortions at all times for any reason. But it is a political idea that came from a very specific place, and that's Marxism. What's fascinating about this is that one would think now that there has been a reversal of what at least the majority opinion has admitted was bad case law in the first place, meaning that they basically crafted this out of um, whole cloth and um, tried to pass it off as protected by the right to privacy, which um, is an extreme uh, position to be sure, and the high court finally um, came to its senses in that regard and reversed itself. And so, you know, if anything, the federal government ought to be saying, well, we're going to give to states that are willing to do this, uh, you know, uh, a grant of money. Okay, I, I don't really like my tax dollars going in that direction at the federal level, but okay, that that at least within the spirit and letter of the high court's decision would, would seem to fit within the framework. This certainly does not. If anything, it seems to abjectly fly in the face of the SCOTUS decision. And you know what I find yes. fascinating about all this? And, Brian, maybe you can comment on this briefly just before time in the segment winds down that we can sure. dive in a bit more after the break. But uh, what what I find curious is the pro-abortion side has been aware of the rising influence of the pro-life movement for decades now. It's not like this is any secret. It's not like we try to, you know, uh, do all of this quietly, surreptitiously in the middle of the night. We we were very clear that we were going to do all that we could within the, the, the law to protect life. Why there was never an effort by Congress at times when it had control of the House, the Senate, and the White House, that they could have easily passed a law that would have essentially codified abortion on demand in America. But over the course of the 49 years since the Roe v. Wade decision, the Doe v. Bolton decision, they never did that. So it, it, it seems to me largely that, you know, if they, if they were so concerned about this, they would have done something when the opportunity to strike was there. Now that the high court has ruled, guess what, folks? This is not protected constitutionally, at least not at the federal level. It's up to the states to decide. Now they want to sort of um, reinvent the wheel here. Why is that, do you think? Well, first and foremost, it's because when the unalloyed facts, what you're pointing out, if they had said, look, we want abortion any time through all nine months, you don't need a medical reason for the woman or child. We just want unlimited abortion. That is not popular. There are pro-choice people who say, well, that's too far. I just want it for certain circumstances. So they would have had to have it discussed. We are going to discuss it in California, because it's going to be on the ballot in November. But in point of fact, the more people look at what they really mean by choice, and again, you hit it on the head, the media has helped in the lies about what Roe was and about what it is our opponents want. They have misrepresented it 
But the fact is, most Americans don't agree with this madness that they're proposing. They just don't agree with it. Brian Johnson with us tonight. We're talking about... uh uh, the the trend, the movement now that's beginning to uh, gain a little bit of momentum, at least within the halls of uh, of um, power in Washington, D.C., to look at, to uh, try to uh, um, protect or ensure, quote-unquote, that certain medications are available, meaning abortifacients, um, through the, um, the federal government. And so it, it's an attempt at a workaround, whether or not this would even for a nanosecond survive a court challenge in the wake of the SCOTUS decision? Eh, I'm not an attorney, but I played one on the radio. Probably not. We'll explore this a little bit deeper and um, get into to some of the uh, the subterfuge uh, going on here. The campaign is mis- of misinformation afoot. As our conversation with the Western Regional Director of the National Right to Life Committee and host of Life Matters, Again, heard Saturday mornings at 11 a.m. here on KFAX. Brian Johnston, my guest. Our dialogue continues after this. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Our back, Brian Johnston with us, host of Life's Matters. This program, Saturday mornings at 11 a.m. here on KFAX. And, of course, he is also the Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee. We've been talking about... Uh, the recent announcement that the administration is attempting to essentially uh, override the SCOTUS decision that's, what, maybe 30 days old, at least officially so, that says the states decide this topic. It's not an issue for the federal government. Well, they're trying to uh, come up with a workaround, at least when it comes to abortifacients or RU486. And and part of the the broader issue here, and and this is what I want to kind of zero in on, in this segment, Brian, and that is that, you know, number one, there are other regulations beyond just the word of SCOTUS that makes this problematic. Um, And the bigger part of this seems to be, as I suggested in my earlier remarks, part of a pretty involved subterfuge by the pro-choice movement that largely is motivated not by ideals or even morals, certainly, but by money, but that you you look at much of what they've told and the, and the kind of the fervor out there, you know, whether we're talking about, uh, oh, um, women are, are going to have to delete their uh, their tracking information that they use for their cycles because it can be used to determine whether or not um, she's expecting. Or if a woman has gone online and searched for information pertaining to abortions, that um, that search record is going to be used as that of evidence against her to try to convict her. Um, and, and all of this, along with even beginning to um, put some heat, quote-unquote, on many of the pregnancy resource centers that are just out there to give women the, the truth and give them support, that all of this is coming under fire, and it seems to be almost, a, if I didn't know better, wink-wink, a coordinated campaign of misinformation. Well, it is, Craig, and you know, uh, and I'll just a shameless plug, but in my book, Evil Twins, Roe and Doe, many people haven't heard of Doe, but it's conjoined. It's really the deadly part of Roe. They are the decisions that basically took away the state's authority and gave it to killing doctors. The, the Supreme Court unleashed medical killing. Again, every state said, 
we get to protect lives. The Supreme Court took it away in Roe and Doe, but that's been misrepresented, as we talked about earlier. Now the question is, what do they really want? And one of the chapters, as you'll recall, I speak about Ruth Bader Ginsburg because in many of her comments from the bench, I heard, I've read Marx and Engels. A lot of people don't read them. They're terrible and evil. It's a religion. It's a faith. It's not an economics principle. It's a view of reality and history and where history's going. I've read them. And I looked at what Ruth Bader Ginsburg said from the bench. In several places, she quoted directly from Karl Marx and Engels on the nature of the family, on the nature of marriage, on the nature of abortion. They were direct quotes from Karl Marx. This stunned me. And in one chapter, I commit the chapter to examining both her thoughts from the bench you were listening to a Marxist from the bench. But more to the point, if you understand Marxist thinking, the very first predicate, and the most eloquent, by the way, very quickly for people who know Russian history, it was Trotsky, who was the real scholar and student of Marxism, and Stalin actually stopped unlimited abortion. There was unlimited abortion in Russia under Marxism from 1922 until 1935. And Stalin, who is now the dictator, said, oh my God, he was looking at the numbers. Russian women were not having children. He knew a war was coming. This is 1935. He saw it coming. He said, I need soldiers. I need them quickly. He stopped all free abortions. He then went further. He paid women to raise children in their own homes. Marx and Engels did not want children raised in their own homes. They should be raised by the state. Trotsky wrote a book attacking Stalin, saying Stalin doesn't understand the revolution. Because the first premise of the revolution, by the way, was not that poor people or the Cossacks or the Slavs. They were not the oppressed. Women are the first of all oppressed classes, according to Marx. And it is childbearing that oppresses them. And unless they are free to kill that child when they see fit, it isn't up to the health of the child or any of the social reasons you talk about, you Christians. No. It's up to... She owns that baby because if the baby is raised in a family, now the family becomes the center of culture Marx wanted the state to be the center of your world, and your, to be your family. And Trotsky published a book, The Revolution Betrayed. He attacked Stalin for restoring birth to mothers and raising children by their mothers in their homes. And then fathers would come into the home because moms wanted help. And the family was restarted. Trotsky was driven from Russia. He escaped to Mexico and was hiding in Mexico, but he was killed by a KGB agent sent by Stalin. Many of you know that in Marxist and Russian history. You didn't know that unlimited government-sponsored abortion is an essential premise for AOC, for the Bernie bros, 
and for the Marxist ideology that is the contemporary Democrat Party. They demand there must be unlimited abortion for women to be free. That is a Marxist belief. And our contemporary Democrat Party has embraced the Marxist ideology more than any... This is not the JFK Democrat Party, folks. I hope you know that. This is unalloyed Marxism, and they're controlling your government. I know they control the government in California. I've met them, talked to them. That's exactly what they believe. What I just described to you from Leon Trotsky is precisely what they believe about the role of government and the role of abortion. It's the source of women's freedom. And they're the first of the oppressed classes. The revolution must go forward through unlimited government-sponsored abortions. That's Marxism. There is another major issue at foot here that uh, we're going to be addressing coming up in a moment related to um, another... Well, let me be clear about this. The push to have the Department of Health and Human Services make sure that abortifacients are available across the country is one issue at hand. The other issue at hand coming up is something called the Women's Health Protection Act. What's that all about? We'll be talking about that coming up next. Meanwhile, I want to encourage you on Saturday mornings, spend some time with Brian Johnston where he gets the opportunity to um, unwrap these issues a bit more in depth without so many interruptions from yours truly. That happens every Saturday morning at 11 a.m. on his program called Life Matters. So we invite you to check that out. (coughs) Pardon me. Check that out. Also get more information online by going to californiaprolife.org. That's californiaprolife.org. Dot O-R-G. When we come back, a look at the Women's Health Protection Act. Pete Peterson, Dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, joins us next as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right. Um, I want to turn a corner but not leave the broader subject matter, um, at least not for a few more moments, because there's another dynamic taking place here in addition to some of the so-called executive orders and edicts making their way out of Washington, D.C. in response to the SCOTUS decision on Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton. Uh, But now, ironically enough, Congress is getting into the act, at least the House of Representatives, the chance of this passing in the Senate are uh, probably slim to none at this juncture. But uh, a, a new bill called the Women's Health Protection Act which, ironically enough, as we were discussing with our last guest, seems to be a day late and a dollar short, that there have been multiple times over the last 49 years and five months of Roe's existence where the Democrats that control the House, the Senate, the White House, could have passed legislation. For whatever reason, they chose not to. Eh, Sorry, too late. The high court has now ruled, so they're going to try and cobble things back together again. Let's get some more insights as to why, to the greatest degree, this seems to be public policy that's fool's folly in light of the SCOTUS decision on this. Pete Peterson joins us, Dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy at the Davenport Institute at Pepperdine University, where he serves as a senior fellow as well. Pete, always an honor and privilege to have you join us. I'm just trying to kind of think through the process here of these discussions that must be taking place in the Beltway that state that, well, after we've done nothing for 49 and a half years, resting on our laurels, assuming that um, this was settled uh, 
in the eyes of the, at least the Supreme Court in 1973. Now, all of a sudden, they're going to come back and try to pass legislation that seems to fly in the face of the Supreme Court decision that was just handed down. Not saying that abortion is illegal in America, but saying that this decision is one that is better left up to the states. So how does the House, even for a nanosecond, think that the Women's Health Protection Act would pass the Senate, let alone survive court challenges? Well, Craig, great to be back with you and agreed on the the folly of this effort in Congress. You know, it's obvious that this is a a political move in response uh, to the Democratic leadership in both the House and the Senate. No, wait, hey, uh, look over here. No, look over there. Look over here. Yeah, I get it. (laughs) Or or even to say, hey, we're, we're doing something about it. The immense amount of pressure brought about by... Uh, the the pro-choice lobby in Washington, D.C. is immense. So the thought that they would do nothing, I think, uh, would be too much to be expected. The thought that this would actually pass uh, the Senate in particular, I think, uh, as we've agreed, is folly. Is this a little bit of a, 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 how should I phrase this, a a little bit of um, political theater then for the benefit of the the larger donors, organizations like Planned Parenthood that look at this and say, hey guys, we contributed to your campaigns, we walked door to door on your behalf, and now you're letting us down. There's a lot of money at stake here, isn't there? That's absolutely right. That That is what this is about. It's more of a performative act for the donor base on the left. But what it also does, and this I think is going to be another contributing factor to a significant landslide uh, for the GOP this coming fall, is that it puts those Democratic House members and Senate members who are in what we might call purple districts, uh, those in particular that may Uh, have a more balanced view on the abortion issue, it puts them in a very difficult spot. Frankly, the Roe decision and the fact that the court erroneously took unto themselves the power to legalize abortion in this country uh, really gave a tremendous benefit to many in Congress who didn't have to stand uh, on that issue either one way or the other. And obviously now, not only in Congress, but what we will see as this issue moves into the states are uh, really some a time for choosing, if you will, to quote the great President Reagan. Uh, there will be a time for choosing on this issue now that it is rightly back in the hands of the people. And, you know, there there's certainly going to be an awakening or a reckoning, I should say, uh, I, I think, come the uh, the midterm elections this fall. Uh, there's almost a sense of some that they're trying to over-exaggerate some of these issues. Um, there yep. certainly has been a sense that the sky is falling post-SCOTA's um, decision, which, as I pointed out, th- this 
means that abortion will be illegal in some states, but not in all states. And this is not being dictated by Washington, D.C. And there are states, um, oddly, largely blue states like New York and California that are bending over backwards to create these these sort of sanctuary policies, come one, right. come all, uh, up to and including uh, the notion of some cases. And we're going to be talking with Brad Dacus about this tonight mm. um, of the Pacific Justice Institute, where they're trying to create not just sanctuary uh, zones for abortion on demand, but even in other arenas, creating uh, elements where if you bring someone across the border from a state where it's illegal to a state like California, that California will not participate in any shape nor form when it comes to extradition or preventing sta- providing evidence, none of it. Uh, that yep. seems to be just an over-exaggerated response to uh, to this entire scenario. And I've got to imagine a lot of this, in addition to the money that we talked about earlier, is also motivated in trying to have some kind of an influence in the outcome of the election in November, wouldn't you think? Well, I think it's, yes, I agree with that. And I think it's fair to say what Roe precipitated was a national policy on abortion that I think many people now understand it was one of the most radical pro-abortion regimes of any Western nation. And the opportunity now provided for this issue to be decided by voters, either through ballot measure or through their elected representatives at the state level, I think is going to provide the necessary if you will, customization of that issue on a state-by-state basis in such a way that the political polarization, the the up-down, the yes-no only option uh, that Roe precipitated is now going to be moderated, as I think our founders always envisioned, uh, these kinds of issues, A, being decided by voters, and B, being decided at the state level. Give me your your sense in terms of, and again, this is the curiosity. So they're they're trying to get this Women's Health Protection Act passed, um, and we know that certainly, while a majority of Americans sadly remain in the the pro choice category, at least you know, of course, it typically depends on how you phrase the question, uh, and and the pollster conducting same. But but we know that. The, the the further we get in in terms of trimesters, the lesser and lesser the support for ad- abortion on demand, and that's just amongst adults across the country. But I look yes. at this and think to myself, uh, I don't know why they think that this would pass muster, that all of a sudden it's like the feds are trying to come in sort of backdoor behind the SCOTUS decision. SCOTUS says, no, it's up to the states, and the feds are going to come in. I mean, I, I would imagine that that were this to pass, and again, the likelihood in, in the Senate is slim to none, but were that the case, uh, the chances of this surviving a court challenge, what, do you, what are your yeah. thoughts? Yeah, I think that the chances, A, I think are are slim that it does actually pass through Congress. But even if it did, it sets itself up perfectly for a court challenge. And I would just say, Craig, back to your earlier point, because I think this really is the crux of the issue. Yes, it's fair to say when just asked yes or no, should there be uh, 
an ability for a woman to have an abortion, yes, a majority of Americans do approve that. But when you do get into the specifics of different trimesters and terms and reasons for the abortion, you do see a significant swing in the approval of voters. When voters are surveyed about the current state of abortion law, I should say pre-Dobbs decision, when they really understood how radical it was, you saw either an even split or even uh, more of a a pro-life position taken by most Americans. And again, that's why I think this is so crucial to understanding the future of this issue politically that that original Mississippi law, which was uh, essentially um, four months or less, that is a policy that I think the vast majority of Americans uh, would support. And so if the goal is to reduce abortions, which I think even going back to President Clinton, who once said he wanted abortions, uh, in his words, safe, legal, and rare, I think that really still remains the position of most Americans. And that was not permitted by Roe, and it is now at least allowed a possibility under Dobbs. Pete Peterson, as we mentioned, is the dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. And, you know, sometimes when these sorts of proposals come forth, there, there are always people behind the scenes. It's, it's not just a member of Congress acting on their own. They have staffs that help to uh, write the language that go into the bills that are being proposed and, and essentially help to create a lot of the, the, the effort that goes into to the public policy that then ultimately, at least in the case of Congress, becomes law. And so when there are shortcomings because people don't really understand what, what A, how to read the temperature of the room, as the saying goes, and B, what's in the best interest of the general public, this is the kind of bad policymaking, bad lawmaking that you get. Take a nanosecond, if you would, Pete, for folks listening that have a keen interest in this and want to make a difference and and are maybe still tossing around ideas pertaining to um, an educational future and what they'd like to do. Speak, if you would, to what's available through Pepperdine University and specifically the School of Public Policy. Well, thanks, Craig. Yes, actually, the application period for fall classes is still open. And so for those of your listeners who are thinking about graduate school, uh, thinking about going to Capitol Hill at some day, someday or working with a major think tank, uh, we certainly provide that kind of education, and especially if issues like life uh, are ones that are uh, of interest or importance to you, uh, we certainly prepare that kind of, uh, give that kind of preparation for students who want to uh, get involved in that policy space. So to learn more, we invite you to reach out. You can simply go online to publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Our thanks to Pete Peterson, Dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, for that update. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, you're going to think there's a trend here in the first hour of the show, and, and maybe there is a little bit, the, 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 the reporting on some of the craziness that goes on, be it in Washington, D.C., as we've just articulated, or closer to home in Sacramento. Um, this one is another head-scratcher. Um, It has to do with Senate Bill 107, 
And this is really creating, I mean, it, 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 it's setting up some tensions not only between the government and parents and parents' rights, but it's even setting up tensions between the states as California here apparently just is going to do everything it can to be a sanctuary city, whether it be abortion on demand, come one, come all, and we'll even pay for it. And, of course, in the arena of gender dysphoria, wow. Um, somebody's confused, and I have a feeling it's the California state legislature. Let's find out more about what is exactly in SB 107. Brad Dacus joins us. He, a constitutional lawyer, the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute. Um, Counselor, we'll get into the issue of um, crossing state lines to engage in all of this in a moment. But first, kind of give us a summary as to what this bill, at least on the surface, is alleging to do. What it's alleging to do is to uh, allow minors to basically change their their gender appearance uh, in terms of uh, getting hormone shots and, and treatments. Um, against parental wishes, uh, but it's 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 much more sinister than that. In that, let's say you have an estranged parent who's not the guardian, or a even potential third party, uh, take the child uh, from the family. Uh, maybe the child normally goes home, walks home to school. Parents say, "Where's my child?" Uh, and instead, they're kidnapped, so to speak, by someone who says, "Okay, I'm going to help you, a confused child, to have your gender changed." Um, the law would protect that action, that kidnapping, and would not um, prosecute the kidnapper uh, because they would see the kidnapper as, a, as some kind of good Samaritan since they're trying to uh, help the child change their gender and uh, against parental notice or, or consent in any way. So it's uh, that's, and then also the medical records uh, of the, the child and in terms of what's done, the procedure. Uh, the parents won't even have access to that. Uh, that will also be uh, not provided, cannot be subpoenated. Um, and, then if, and then, of course, uh, it gets, gets even more diabolical when, he, when you're looking at it from an uh, out-of-state perspective, and that's, that's even worse. So, so essentially your child um, acting as children often do, and we even know adults that have a difficult time making reasonable Decisions, but your 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 child could react in a an emotional fashion. Um, it can be based on a lot of issues, peer pressure, uh, other outside factors, uh, emotional immaturity. Certainly, a a major contributor. That child, he or she, could make a decision that, under normal circumstances, would would involve. Um, parents and doctors and significant discussion and so on and so forth, most of whom would probably logically warn against making any radical, permanent, life-changing decisions. Oh, I don't know, at least until you're of the age of majority. And yet in this case, a child could make that decision and therefore be subjected to um, medical procedures all without the parents even having the courtesy, let alone having say-so, even having the courtesy of being notified. And if a child crosses state lines, as I understand it, whether it be on their own or with the help of a, 
of a third party um, that the um, state of California is not going to participate. There could be a case where, let's say, there's a divorce and son or daughter one day says, I'm in touch with my masculine side or my feminine side opposite of their their birth gender, and let's say mom is all for it, dad is against it. Uh, mom could allow the child to have the procedure. Dad could sue, and California will not cooperate in this in any shape or fashion whatsoever to protect the parental rights of the father. Have I got that right? That is correct. Wow. Um, I was yeah, hoping you were going to say, Craig, you got that entirely wrong. No, no, it's not nearly as bad as that. But you're telling me, no, it's not only as bad as that, but what do I infer from this? Is it even worse? Yes. Um, it, it actually, it's even, it's even worse. See, the, uh, let's say you have a mom who has the, the custody of the child. You have sort of an estranged father. Um, so the father doesn't have legal authority to take the child and, you know, to another state. And uh, that would be kidnapping under the law. Um, normally, and so they they say they live in Texas. Dad takes the, the child, uh, drives to California. Mother reports it to the police. It's kidnapping. Under normal circumstances, all fifty states would put it on you know Amber Alert. They uh, apprehend the child. That's, that's, you know they look for the child. They rescue, send the child back to the mother. This law says, oh no, if a third party is kidnapping a child from another state bring them into California for the purpose of having their body cut on and injected to change their gender, oh, then, then that's okay. We, we, we're not going to call that kidnapping. And by the way, we're not going to send the child back, and we're not going to let the mother know anything as far as the medical records of what happened to their precious child by this third-party stranger or strange dad. Uh, it is a nightmare. People, Many people leave California to avoid the California nightmares. This legislation would say, oh, no, this nightmare can extend to anywhere in the United States. Uh, and we believe it's a violation of uh, the Constitution and uh, as well as federal law. If it passes, uh, our attorneys are already working on, on addressing it. But right now we're fighting it, and we're hoping that our legal opinion and analysis uh, will be taken under consideration deeply, and uh, this bill will die. That's our hope. You know, I, of the parents that I know, most, I think, would say that if my son or daughter came into the room one night and said, Mom, Dad, we need to talk, and revealed that they're struggling with an issue, that said parent would provide emotional support, would be there for the child, would certainly not abandon them or declare that they no longer love them, but instead would want to be there for that child. I also think that most reasonable parents would say, you know, our, our children grow up to be adults and they don't always make the right choices. If, if there's any parent that, that really can relate to the frustration of that, it's very God himself. But that said, parents understand that once a child reaches the age of majority, he or she is now no longer a child, but an adult may make childlike decisions as an adult, but is nevertheless an adult. And our children will make decisions that we will not always agree with, which makes the formative years so critically important, train up a child, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I just certainly don't know any 
you know, it would be the equivalent of having your 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 six year old come in and say, "Mom, I've decided I'm going to join the army and I'm quitting first grade and I'm going to be down at the recruiting office tomorrow." And you know, your your parent would say, "Ha ha, you know, I would love your sense of patriotism, but uh, it's a little early for that. You need to get a little bit older, a little bit of life experience under belt, and then you can make that decision." Why any parent would think this is a good idea to the point where the California state legislature thinks it's a good idea, that part I don't really understand. Who who is driving this momentum? I mean, is is the issue of gender dysphoria that far out of whack in our country today that it's consuming so much time by the California state legislature that that it needs to be, quote-unquote, repaired or fixed? Yes, exactly. The... um their, their agenda is the, the radical left is um, so deep and so extreme, they are willing to literally legalize kidnapping of children out of state um, in, and, and, and in a very extreme way, a way that's going to permanently change the child um, and it has serious ramifications long-term. It's it's insane. I've never in my life seen legislation such an affront of parental rights as this. And, um, you know, people hearing this, uh, you know, in California, we should be very uh, outraged. Uh, people living in other states uh, should be extremely outraged to think that California would try to legalize kidnappers who take kids out of their state and bring them to California to be cut on and injected with things the parents would otherwise find totally objectionable. Yeah, uh, it, it really, it just it justifies the imagination, and it goes back to the core of an issue that I've been hounding on on this program for low 30 years, and that is we have to be involved in politics. I don't mean becoming a screaming meme and going down and trying to, you know, um, burn down buildings or, or uh, other craziness. I mean you need to be voting. You need to be encouraging your friends and your family members to be voting. You need to get educated on the topics. You need to know who the candidates are, what they stand for, and the direction that they're likely going to head in if they get into political office. Absent all of that, this disintegration, if you will, of our nation is going to continue, and by the looks of it, on a fast track. So time to wake up and smell the cocoa. That's all I can say. We'll talk more, and no doubt, in the future. SB 107, want to encourage your member of the California State Senate to vote against this nonsense. Senate Bill 107. Brad Dacus, constitutional lawyer, founder, and president of the Pacific Justice Institute. Information online at pji.org. Counselors, always, we appreciate the time and the insights. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.